0: What is true biblical grace and what does it mean for our lives? We live in a day and hour in which grace is either considered a license to sin or is thrown out the window in place of Pharisaical standards. Today we will examine what grace means for our day to day lives. I'm Noah Hooper and this is the Taught by Grace podcast. Welcome to the inaugural episode of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to dive into Titus 2 verses 11 through 14 and see what God has to say about his grace and what it means for our daily lives. In the book of Titus, Paul is addressing a young man by the name of Titus. He is showing him how to lead this church. And for the first time, Ten verses of this chapter, he's been showing Titus how to lead certain age demographics in the church. The older men, older women, younger men, younger women, whether they be servants or whoever the case might be, he's addressing them for what to proclaim to them and how they are to live. And verse 11 is a transitional verse. It goes from specifics to each age group in the church to now looking at the church as a whole. You see, the first ten were specific and the last is general to all of us now who have trusted Christ. It says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Now, before I continue any further, we must, I must point out that if we are to live in the way that this passage is going to call us to live, we must have first experienced the grace of God in salvation. See, God's grace came through the Lord Jesus Christ in salvation. We could not blaze a trail to heaven. We could not be good enough. We could not live pure enough. Therefore, God sent his son made of woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. We had no ability to redeem ourselves. Therefore, God sent Jesus to redeem us from our sins. And he brought salvation to us. And this salvation, it has appeared to all men. It is exclusive in that it is through Jesus and Jesus alone. But it is all inclusive in that anyone can receive this grace. And you see, this grace must have entered into your heart and life for you to even be able to try to live out the rest of the passage. Because God did not send Jesus into this world, and he does not teach us this because he wanted to make lost men moral. But he sent Jesus into the world to make dead men alive. You and I, as Ephesians 2 and verse 1 tells us, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God quickened us. He made us alive through Jesus Christ. But now that this grace has come in salvation, because it doesn't stop at salvation. You know, many in our churches today, they understand that God's grace is essential for salvation, that by grace are we saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But many forget to understand that the grace of God does not stop at salvation, but the gospel, the work of God in our lives, it continues on. And the grace of God that was brought at salvation is still evidenced in our life because God is working in us to make us like Jesus. You see, this grace, it brought salvation, and now it shows us how we are to live. Beginning in verse 12, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, first of all, we see the manner of grace taught living. The first phrase, teaching us that. We have been brought into the classroom and grace is our professor. And grace is now teaching us that we are to refuse the old life, We are to embrace the life we have in Christ, and we are to set our heart on his return. Notice that we are to deny sinfulness, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. The word denying there it speaks of a continual process of separating from something, of not just saying no once, but continually saying that I do not identify with this, but I separate from this. What are we to separate from? Ungodliness and worldly lust. Now, you could take these two items and stand on your favorite soapbox and begin to preach against all the the drinking and smoking and dancing and all of those things. But the reality is that the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, does not list specific sins right here. Although there are lists of sins throughout the Bible, this is not listed right here. Rather, he goes to the two core matters of the heart. Ungodliness is a mindset that completely disregards God. It is antithetical to the nature of God. It is a complete disregarding of God. You see, and that is the old man. The old man is not focused on God. Our old man does not care about God, but he is pursuing worldly lust. These are desires that are rooted solely in this life for our own good, for our own pleasure. And Paul is exhorting us to deny this. Essentially, he's saying this. Deny the self. Deny the old man who, is not, who does not care about God, who does not consider God in anything he says or does but is only concerned with himself we must deny this because it is a means to the end you see we deny ungodliness and worldly lust so that we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world the reason we must deny is so that we can live the reason we must refuse that old mindset and those old desires is so that we can live in this manner. You see, friend, grace is not a ticket for carnality, but it is a teacher that leads us into Christ likeness. How are we to live soberly? This speaks of our mind. You've heard the term under the influence, haven't you? We all have. We, most of the time we think of that term. The person who is under the influence is under the influence of alcohol. They are not sober. They cannot think straight. They cannot look straight. They are under the influence. The problem is there are too many of us who live under the influence of this life. We live under the influence of everything that is propagated around us. Instead of being led by the word of God and the spirit of God, we are under the influence of this world. So Paul exhorts us, we must deny so that we can live soberly. So that our mind will not be fixated on this life, but our mind will be thinking on those things that are pure, true, just, honest, of good report, that have virtue and praise, as Philippians 4 and verse 8 says. We're to live soberly. We're also to live righteously. This is how we act. Lord, righteously, it speaks of doing right. You see, if we're to think right and we're to act right, then also we are to be right and godly again these are not just actions but these are attitudes see godliness isn't it isn't about what you do but it is about who you are it is about your heart that is fixed on the lord jesus christ you have set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth we are called to live soberly righteously and godly in a word we're called to be christ-like we're called to not have our mind fixed on this world. We're called to have our actions set on honoring God. We are called to have our attitude set on pleasing God. As 1 Corinthians 10 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. And when are we to do this? In this present world. You see, we are to live this way in the here and now because we are ambassadors. To represent the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. In verse 12. The apostle Paul is exhorting us to deny anything. That takes us away from God. So that we may be wholeheartedly yielded to God. We are to deny sinfulness and embrace godliness. But there is also an anticipated return. After we have forsaken ourselves. The old man. The one who is concerned only with himself and not with God and are seeking to live soberly, righteously, and godly. We must set our eyes on the return of Christ. Verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We must live in earnest anticipation of our soon coming King. The word looking reveals that we should anticipate Christ's coming. As a child anticipates Christmas morning, as the wife, the return of her husband from military deployment, so much the more must we look for the return of Christ. We must turn our eyes to two distinct events. This is not one event, but this is pointing towards two distinct events, the blessed hope and the glorious appearing. John Phillips said of this passage, he said that we should be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing, which referred to the two future comings of the Lord Jesus, his coming in the clouds to receive his bride, and his coming to the earth to resolve the battle. You see, friend, the blessed hope, it is the rapture that is spoken of in First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17, that declares Jesus is returning to snatch his church from this fallen world. It is certainly a blessed hope. You see, when the trumpet sounds, you and I who have trusted Christ are going to meet Jesus in the clouds with the dead in Christ. We will leave this world, all the cares, all the troubles of this life behind, and we will meet him in the air. And I cannot speak for you, but that hope is more blessed. It is more wonderful the longer I live, the worse this world seems to get, because I'm glad that there we have hope. Not only in this life, but in the life to come. It is a blessed hope. But this isn't the only event we are to be anticipating. There's also the glorious appearing. You see, how do you know these are two different events? Because Jesus doesn't show himself to the world when he comes in the rapture. The church will see him. We will see him. But the world will not. See, the glorious appearing is different. See, we will go up with him in the rapture or the blessed hope. And then after the seven year tribulation period, we will return with him at his second coming. This, king, this coming will not be like his first. He is not coming as a baby in a lowly stable, but he is returning as the king of glory. With his vesture dripped in blood and his name being king of kings and lord of lords, he will return to this earth as the everlasting triumphant king of glory to defeat all of his foes. You see, we have a wonderful future to look forward to, and we must live in anticipation of it, where our hope is not in this life alone, but our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone, who is returning to receive us as his bride and then to resolve the battle. This is the manner in which grace calls us to live. We are to deny ungodliness so that we might live holy lives. And we are to set our eyes on the return of Christ. We are to set our heart on the fact that he is coming again and comfort one another with those words, as 1 Thessalonians tells us. This is the manner we are to live, but the passage doesn't end with this call to action. The last two verses we read are about action. They're about living and denying and looking. But verse 14 doesn't call us to do anything. But rather, it shows us what we must understand so that we can live this life. Verse 14 is the means for grace-taught living. It says, Who gave himself for us? Why did he give himself for us? That he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. The reason Jesus gave himself for us is twofold. First of all, is that he might save us, that he might redeem us or buy us back from all iniquity. The word iniquity there speaks of lawlessness. In other words, what he's saying is that you and I, we were, lawbreakers. We had broken the very law of God. We were condemned to eternity apart from God in the lake of fire because of our iniquity, because of our sin. And Jesus came and he redeems us from all iniquity. There is not a stain of sin that remains, but as Colossians talks about when it says that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. Nailing it to his cross. In other words, there was a list of sins and crimes we had committed against God, how we had failed God, how we had messed up. And Jesus came and he blotted it out like it had never happened. And he nailed it to his cross, thus declaring that he finished it. He paid the debt. He came and he gave himself for us willingly that he might redeem us from all iniquity. I believe we understand that. But also believe that we often miss this part of it. He didn't give himself for us just to save us, but he gave himself for us to sanctify us. See, the work of the gospel in our lives does not end at salvation, but it continues until the day of redemption. There's a work in which God began in us that he has predestinating us, those who have trusted in Christ, to be conformed. To the image of Jesus Christ. This is what this phrase talks about. And purify, cleanse unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The word peculiar there, it doesn't mean what we often use that word in our day and hour. When we hear the word peculiar, we think of something odd and weird. But that is not what this word peculiar means. But rather, this word peculiar is speaking of showing possession of. In other words, what he's saying is, and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Christ gave himself for us. He saved us and washed away our sins. And now he is purifying us so that we might be unmistakably his, undeniably his. You see, this is the work of God in our lives. It is to purify us. It is to cleanse us, not so that we will just be different from the world, but so that we will be distinct unto Christ. And in being distinct unto Christ, we will inevitably be different from the world. See, many think the Christian life is about being different. It's about standing out. But they miss the reason we are to stand out. We're not to stand out because I don't do this or I don't do that. We're to stand out because we're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to walk like him. We're supposed to love like him. We are supposed to be like Jesus. This is the purpose of God for our lives. You say, what is the will of God for my life? It is for you to be like Jesus. He gave himself for us to save us and sanctify us. And this peculiar people is to be a people that are zealous of good works. They aren't just living this life complacent, but they are people who are passionately pursuing the glory of God in all that they say and in all that they do. You see, this is grace-taught living. It is living to deny this world, to be sober, righteous, and godly, to look for the return of Christ. Because we understand that it is his purpose for us to live this life. You see, we cannot do this through our own strength and ability. Because I don't know if you're like me, but when I've read this passage before, I've wondered, how can I do this? How can I deny and live and look? How, Lord? And then he reminds me through verse 14 that it is his purpose for us. To live in this manner. So my challenge to you is. I wonder. How are you living? Is your life defined as peculiar? Are you unmistakably Christ? In everything you say and do. He has called us. And he is working in us. So that we might be a peculiar people. So let us strive to be peculiar. Let us strive to be distinct. Let us strive to love him and worship him and abide in him so that we might be good ambassadors of him in this world. Let us be peculiar because we know it is his purpose for us and he is working in us for it to happen. This is why he came. This is why he gave himself for us to save us and sanctify us. And that is the work of the gospel in it in us. And I hope that you will understand this and know you don't have to do it on your own. But God gives us his grace so that we can live this life. I trust you enjoyed the podcast today and I hope you will join me next week once again on the Taught by Grace podcast.